to another episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast with me, your host, Paul Swindell. Today, I'm joined by cardiac arrest survivor and nurse, Charlotte Pickwick. Welcome, Charlotte, and uh, what a beautiful day it is. Thank you. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, everybody. And how are you today? Yeah, I'm really well, thank you. Just been on a lovely dog walk and the sun's shining and uh, I have a Tuesday off, so it's a nice day and I'm meeting a friend for lunch today, so something to look forward to. Yeah, life is good. Eh? It is good. <laughs> I understand you had your cardiac arrest about 18 months ago now. Do you think you could uh, briefly tell me about your life before it and then perhaps afterwards you can tell me about the, the, the actual event? Yeah, of course. So um, I was 41 and my cardiac arrest was at 20 past two on Boxing Day morning 2017. Um so I had a very, very happy life. I've been a qualified nurse for 20 years. Um, I worked full time as a practice nurse. Um, however, my background, I worked for 12 years on an emergency assessment unit. And then I worked for five years as a palliative care nurse. And I've been in this post as a practice nurse for four years. For about six, seven weeks prior to my arrest, um, I kept having episodes of just not really feeling quite right. Um, but so did most of my work colleagues. Um, we all just felt a little bit fluey, just a bit run down. Um, but I put this down to being a busy working mum coming up to Christmas, um, obviously a busy time at work, busy time of the year for everybody. And a few times I passed comment to a couple of my colleagues at work and to my husband that I didn't feel just quite right. On December the 23rd, we went to friends for their annual Christmas drinks night and I had one glass of wine where I probably vomited and I thought it was a bit odd on one glass of wine. So again, I passed comment to my husband, it's a bit odd. Um, so I just drank Coke for the rest of the evening and again on the way home, I felt violently sick um, and again thought it's a bit odd. Um, come Christmas Eve, we had a lovely Christmas Eve and we always go to Chris Dingle at the local church followed by going to the local pub. And I walked into the local pub and again felt very, very peculiar. And I remember feeling like my head was going to explode. So I said to my husband, I'm just going to go and lay down on the bed for an hour and I'll come back and get you and the children. So I came back after an hour and again, didn't feel quite right. Um, so went to bed quite early Christmas Eve. Christmas Day was wonderful Christmas day. Unfortunately, I can't remember it, but I was told I was on good form and we had a lovely Christmas day. And then again, about nine o'clock at night, I passed comments to my parents and my husband that I didn't feel quite right. Um, so we came back home. Um, we're at my parents' house um, and I settled into bed about half past 10, um, gave the children a kiss goodnight and said I wanted to go to sleep because I really didn't feel very well at all but again couldn't really put it down to anything just thought it was a bit of a virus at 20 past two on the 26th of the 12th 2017 I let out an agonal gasp this woke my husband Stuart who obviously thought I was dreaming he turned the light on to ask me what I was doing I had pinpricked eyes I was making occasional groans I was in full cardiac arrest 
He's an engineer, but had done many CPR courses over the years. He dialed 999, dragged me onto the floor and started CPR. He did seven minutes of CPR when the paramedics arrived. I was shocked by a defibrillator at home and then obviously was taken into hospital. I arrested again in ITU in hospital and I, after 24 hours, I was transferred to the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford where I arrested again. My memory over this period is very, very vague. My last proper memory is really October 2017. And my next memory is really coming out of hospital on the 2nd of January. I had an ICD fitted and was discharged home. Weak, emotional, but alive. Can I just stop you and sort yeah, of, of uh, ask a couple of questions? Um, yeah. There's quite a lot there. So... Um... You said you didn't feel right quite a few times. Yes. Could could you describe that? And uh, is it not right in a cardiac sense? Yeah, no, not not at all. So nothing heart-related at all. Um, I just felt, and I do remember these episodes, um, you know, when you feel like you're coming down with a cold or a bit fluey, that's how I felt. So just a bit achy bones. Um, just not quite right. I was still working full time, so I couldn't have felt that ill. Um, but I just remember not feeling quite myself. Um, a couple of times I felt a bit dizzy, but again, put that down to not drinking enough. Um, nothing cardiac related at all. So I didn't have any palpitations. I had no shortness of breath. I had no pain anywhere. I just didn't feel quite right. But nor did my colleagues at work who were all other doctors and nurses. So we all put it down to a virus. And obviously we're exposed to huge amounts of, you know, viruses at work all the time. And I just put it down to a virus um, and being a busy working mum. Uh-huh. Well, it seems a reasonable thought, really. I mean, do, do I always wonder, do doctors and nurses get more colds and coughs and things like that than the average person? Uh, no, quite the contrary. I think when I first qualified, yes, because obviously your immune system is so poor <laughs> because you're so susceptible to, to all these ill people. But over the years, you obviously build up such a high immunity because you're constantly exposed to poorly people that actually I'm very blessed. Um, I very, 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 very rarely get get ill or get coughs or colds or viruses. Um, So, yeah, I was just a normal mum, you know, happy, um, got wonderful supportive family, lovely partner, um, wonderful children, amazing work colleagues. So, yeah, there was nothing to indicate at all that it was anything cardiac related. We now know hindsight is a wonderful thing that I was obviously flipping in and out of long QT and that's why I was feeling like that. But at the time, obviously, I, I didn't know that and had nothing nothing related at all. So you had no previous cardiac history relating to No, nothing long at QT. all. So, um, you know, initially after my arrest when I came home, the anger was overwhelming as a nurse of all those years how could I have not picked up on my symptoms? How could I have ignored them and not had, you know, various tests done to to see? But um, obviously, as time's gone on, I realised I felt exactly like that many times over the years where, 
you know, you just have a bit of a virus. We don't all run to a doctor and get huge amounts of investigations every time we feel a little bit off colour. And that's the only thing I felt was just a little bit off colour. But most people feel like that at some point over the winter period. So it was nothing, you know, severe enough for me to get medical attention for. I just felt off colour is the only way I can describe it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, many people, especially over that period, the winter, and yeah, you're, you're running around like a headless chicken quite often as well, aren't you? Exactly, exactly. And getting, you know, Christmas presents sorted and lots of different work. You know, work was very busy because it's a Christmas period and lots of social events. So you're tired because you're obviously trying to keep up a social life and work, um, parties, that sort of thing. So I just put it down to feeling a bit tired because obviously it's it's a busy time of year so can i take you back to to what was it to two o'clock or 20 past two yeah, on sure. boxing day yes i mean can you talk about that in a little yeah, bit so more? obviously um i know quite a lot about it now because we actually um asked for the 999 recording um it took me a long time to make that decision however the controlling nurse in me wanted to know exactly what happened um, I can well appreciate that it's not for everybody to want to listen to the 999 call. However, for myself, I wanted to know exactly what happened in my situation. Could, could I just, uh, before we go on, how, how did you go about getting that so that I know other people quite often want to listen to it? And yeah. I, I, I did and didn't want to listen to it, and I still have that um, thought about listening to it and getting it. And Tracy said, you know, if you want to get it, go ahead and get it. She doesn't want to listen to it, obviously, yeah. but um, you know, I might just get it for posterity and maybe not even listen to it. But I've got it. If I've got it, I've got the yeah. option to. So I was just wondering, how, how did you go so about getting it? We contacted the patient and liaison service, PALS, via um, the ambulance service that came out to me. So the ambulance service that came out to me was East Midlands Ambulance Service. So we sent an email to PALS um, explaining the situation, explaining the date, um, and obviously the approximate time that the call was made. Obviously, we, we couldn't remember, or my husband couldn't remember the exact time. Um, and then they um, we had to uh, sign a couple of forms, obviously, to make sure we were saying who we said we were from a confidentiality point of view. And then the recording was emailed over to us. Um, so the the East Midlands Ambulance Trust liaison. It's I think off the top of my head, it was the um, the press liaison person. So they work with PALS. Um, sent the recording to us. Um, when we received the recording, my husband Stuart was at work. I was on a day off at home, and we both said, "Don't listen to it alone. Make sure you know we'll listen to it together later." So 10 minutes later, I was looking at the computer and I thought, do I press play, don't I? And I thought, yes, I want to listen to this on my own. Ironically, my husband Stuart did exactly the same and sat there and listened to it in his office at work. Um, I probably played it 50 times that day, uh, just re-listening to it on my own, um, because you could keep hearing my agonal gasps in the background. Um which went on for quite a long time, quite a few minutes. Um, to be fair, it's just that obviously even in death, I have a lot to say, but I've been involved, <laughs> I've been involved in many cardiac arrest situations over the years as a qualified nurse, and I've never heard a patient 
go on to make agonal gas for that long. Um, so it's about four and a half, five minutes worth of agonal gasping that you can hear on the 999 call. Um, so, wow. yeah. What, what, in, in, what your your experience of a sort of the average Literally thing? a few seconds. So norm, normally most patients will let out sort of two or three agonal gasps and then you hear nothing. Um, whereas, like I said, even in death, I've always got a lot to say. So you can hear my agonal gasp about every 30 to 40 seconds. So I understand initially why my husband, Stuart, was confused as to whether I was in cardiac arrest or not because of how long the agonal gasp went on for. Um, Yeah, and you can hear them quite clearly. So it's just, you know, and we'll go on to this later, but the importance of making sure that you do the doctor's ABC and if somebody doesn't breathe normally within that 10-second period, they are in cardiac arrest. Um, and that don't be fooled by the patient letting out occasional gasps because it doesn't mean they're not in cardiac arrest. Mm-hmm. That's that's really important to understand, yes, it isn't is. it? It is. Yeah. I expect. Uh, well, we talk a little bit about what you've done since then, but I bet you mention that quite a lot. Yes, I do. You? I do you definitely. Know? When we do our courses, and I say how long I let out agonal gasps for, um, and yes, obviously, I was, you know unique in letting them out for that long however it's just so important to make sure that the the 10 seconds that if a patient isn't breathing normally to start chest compressions mm-hmm. so so going back to to listening to the recording how, how you said you listened to it multiple times 50 times yes. i think it was and what was your take from initially, it initially i was very numb i thought i would burst into tears but actually i didn't i just kept listening and listening and just felt so numb and couldn't believe that it was me lying on the floor um, dead and Stuart was doing what he was doing. I was so in awe and humbled by how calm, even though obviously it didn't sound calm in Stuart's voice, but how calm he was um, and just listened to the call handler um, and followed the instructions clearly. Um, And he didn't, you know, I thought that he would be shouting and hurry up and help me. He didn't at all. He was very, very calm. Um, although I'm sure, you know, he didn't feel calm, but he just listened to what they were telling him to do um, and followed their advice. And obviously, thanks to what he did, I'm here today to tell the tale. Um, we haven't listened to the recording. So I listened to it numerous times over the next couple of weeks once we got the recording, but I haven't listened to it now for some time. Um, we obviously have it saved, but I don't feel I need to keep listening to it. Um, you know, again, it's something now that I've managed to listen to and it's another chapter of my life to sort of put to bed now. And I don't need to, I don't feel I need to keep listening to it now. Yeah. It's sort of, uh, I think, uh, I think you're, well, you are similar to myself in that you haven't got any memory of that no. period. Do you think it's helped, helped sort of fill in the, the, pu- the missing pieces of yes, the puzzle? Definitely. Um, my memory really, I mean, I've got a couple of memories of feeling unwell, but I've got a, about a three-month amnesia of that period of time. Um, I'm very, I'm, I'm my, my own character is very much that I like to control. I like to organise things. I'm a real active person, a doer. And, you know, not to know what happened to me, I struggled with that. So once I got the details of that, Um, I do think it personally helped me to move on because obviously 
my husband was so traumatized by what he'd done. He couldn't remember what he'd said or the conversation or anything. So it helped me piece together what happened on that evening. And you, you mentioned uh, Stuart there. How did he feel about listening to other? So a brave move to listen to it yeah, in his office. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, again, we listened to it quite a few times that evening together. Um, and obviously there were tears when we listened to it together. Of course there were. Um, and he had really no recollection of the call either because it was so traumatic. Um, so again, over the time, I've said to him numerous times, what happened? Who greeted me at hospital? Did you recognise any of the staff? You know, time frames. But obviously, because it was so traumatic for him, um, he's got a lot of, of periods where he doesn't remember what happened once I got to hospital. And I'm sure a lot of relatives um, also feel that because it's obviously such a traumatic time that your memory is very clever in blocking out those periods to, to save any pain. Yeah. And how's well? How's he all about it? Um, Stuart is very um, proactive. So initially, when we first came home, um, I I was only in hospital eight nine days. Um, so when I first came home, I was so weak that he had um, three and a half four weeks off work when I first came home to help look after me. Um, I really struggled even to walk to the toilet. Um, just so ridiculously weak and um, I'm sure a lot of people can can sympathize with that and felt the same um so he was very compassionate caring um again just so there were periods of time where we were so angry um how could I have missed this we weren't he wasn't angry towards me but how could this have happened to me I was 41 I was fit I was healthy I don't smoke I only drink occasionally. Um, you know, I just was a normal 41-year-old nurse. Um, I had no cardiac history. I have no family history. Um, I was the most unlikely candidate, or so I thought, to have a cardiac arrest. Um, it just doesn't happen to people like me, Is my it was my feeling before. Um, up until, obviously, you know, the these last sort of 18 months I don't even recall ever meeting a cardiac arrest survivor um you know in hospital obviously I worked 12 years in hospital to my memory all cardiac arrests that I'd been involved in had died um I can't ever remember a successful resuscitation attempt even in a hospital environment whether again that's my memory I don't know but my recall is that I've I've never been involved in a successful cardiac arrest attempt Wow. <laughs> so you must feel incredibly lucky to have uh, survived outside of one without expert and medical attention immediately. On Hugely. Um, I'm sure with lots of people, it's still very surreal um, about what's happened. Um, in a very, very bizarre way, um, my time since it, I've made friends for life Um what we've achieved since it, we wouldn't have done any of this had I not had a cardiac arrest. So no, of course, I wouldn't have wished this upon myself in a million years. However, what it's brought us from my arrest, none of that would have happened had I have not had a cardiac arrest. So for some bizarre reason, life does throw us some big curveballs. And it's how I feel that we deal with 
with the arrest and whether we initially fall to pieces, which believe me, I did for many, many, a good sort of three, four months after my arrest, I fell to pieces. And then Stuart and again, the children were so traumatised and we decided actually we can wallow in this self-pity of why has this happened to us or we can do something positive um, with what's happened to us. It is not normal. Um, It is huge and you can't even begin to put into words and I'm sure other survivors will feel the same of what we have been through. However, wallowing in and saying, why is it, why has it happened to me? Why hasn't it happened to me? It has. And it's how we deal with the aftermath um, is how I feel that we've managed to cope with things. Uh-huh. Well, we will come on to, to that in a little bit, but I'll just, um, cause you've done some amazing stuff since, but um, just going back to the actual um, event, you mentioned your, your children, were they uh, awake at the time or you said they were traumatized were they yes uh, i've got two children um at the time zara was uh 10 10 and a half and my son sam was 14 um stuart called sam to open the door to the paramedics um so he did come in the bedroom and saw stuart doing the cpr on me um and then sam came downstairs and opened the door to the paramedics um Zara our daughter didn't wake until the paramedics actually came into the the house so she didn't see um me having her CPR on me but she obviously saw me unconscious um but Sam did witness um Stuart doing CPR on me um so yeah obviously very very traumatic for the children as well very traumatic mm-hmm. um you know this was supposed to be one of the happiest times of the year christmas and then all of a sudden their mum's you know lying dead on the floor and their dad's doing cpr on their mum so you know not at all what you would hope your children would ever have to witness indeed did they have you um had any counseling for them or how, how have they yeah, been since so, um the children we're very open family so we talk constantly all the time um both children didn't feel they wanted counseling um we have you know huge amounts of long discussions and I remember quite clearly one of the discussions I was about three weeks after my cardiac arrest and um I can remember going into Sam's room and him being really upset and I said to him this is not normal you know, this doesn't happen to normal people. However, this has happened to us. I will get better. And we're not going to just make this the epiphany of our lives of what's happened. We're going to move forward and we're going to make something positive out of something so horrific um, that you can't even begin to put into words, you know, how it makes you feel. But we're going to move on and we're going to do something positive. At the time, I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, Obviously, we'll talk about it in a bit of what we've done. But initially, I just knew that, as as with many people, that the drive was my children um, and and to move forward and to not dwell into this self-pity of what's happened to us. It sounds a very uh, positive mindset. uh... I mean, I'm not making light of it at all. And my goodness, there was many, many a dark time over the first few weeks and months. You know, I haven't got to where I am now without huge amounts of tears, um, huge amounts of trauma, 
Um, I can remember people saying to me, you know, oh, but look how well you've done. Look where you are now. The physical side is so much easier to get over as from the emotional and mental side. Um, and coming to terms with your own mortality at the age of 41 is something I never, ever thought I'd have to face. Do, do you feel like you can uh, trust your body? Have you lost, lost trust in your body? Um, that's a really good question. Ironically, my sort of emotional um, breakdown didn't happen for about 14 months after my cardiac arrest. So I think initially I was just so pleased I was alive um, and that life then was hopefully going back to some degree of normality. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, um, sort of 13, 14 months after my arrest, was the time I actually really struggled emotionally to come to terms with what had happened. Um, so eventually, um, I contacted um, and managed to get some counselling. Um, and I'm still having counselling now, which has hugely, hugely helped. Um, I always thought I never needed counselling. I've been very blessed. I've never suffered with any mental health problems. I've never suffered with depression. Um, and then all of a sudden, I was just an emotional wreck constantly, um, severe flashbacks. Um, I was lucky if I was having 20 minutes sleep a night, Um so again, everything I think over the last 14 months suddenly came to a head. Um, ironically, one of the people that supported me the most was another cardiac arrest survivor, Sarah Howard Stone, that I met at the great um, world record attempt last year. Um, and she was a huge emotional support for me um, because she'd obviously been there as well. So as much as, you know, and that's why the group um, has been an absolute lifeline for me because it's other survivors that just get how we all feel and that we do still have bad days. Of course we do. Um, and somebody might be having a bad day where somebody else is feeling much more positive that day. So there is a very, very special group that has been a huge, huge um, support for me. Yeah, well, as, 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 as brilliant to hear that you've had that support yes. from the group. and. and in not only in the sort of an online sense, but uh, an offline sense, in that someone has um, Sarah has stepped out and sort of uh, contacted you exactly. directly, which is really exactly. So really no, I've great. been very very blessed. Um, I think we we sometimes sort of forget how unique we all are, um, you know, in the fact that we've survived. Um, and you know, I know a lot of people in the group do suffer physically. Um, I've been very blessed in that I haven't had huge amounts of physical symptoms post-arrest. Um, as time has gone on, time does make things easier. Of course it does. But the emotional aspect is really where I've personally needed the support from, um, is to come to terms with what exactly has happened to myself and to, you know, again, other members of the group and I'm sure they can um, appreciate the emotional aspect is so much harder to come to terms with mm -hmm. uh, without obviously going into any real personal details can you tell me what sort of uh things happen uh, with a counseling session yeah, so um, and, and how, how you got to got to have them as well it's worth, probably worth just giving people a little bit of a background yeah so um I think a lot of, unfortunately, because my arrest was over the Christmas period, I sort of got a little bit lost in the system. 
So um, I didn't see an ICD nurse when I was in hospital um, because they were all obviously on leave over Christmas and New Year period. Um, I wasn't offered any counselling in hospital. Um, so um, a friend of mine um, who works as a cardiac rehab nurse managed to contact my cardiologist um, and arrange some, some counselling via cardiac rehab, although I didn't get offered any cardiac rehab. I'm seeing a counsellor via cardiac rehab through my cardiologist. Um, I did initially contact some private counsellors, um, but unfortunately, as I'm sure many are aware, there was a huge financial cost, um, which I sort of struggled. Of course, they're worth their weight in gold, but um, it wasn't a financial cost that I felt we could meet. Um, some of the counsellors wanted sort of £120 an hour. Um, so I've had... I would say probably 10, 11 sessions. Um, and initially I thought, is it really going to help me? What are they going to be able to say to me that I haven't said to myself already? But it has really helped. And one of the biggest things she's done, which is a very, very interesting um, concept, is my memory was very fragmented. And I thought I had huge amounts of memories, bad memories of the event. When I actually wrote it down, it filled one side of A4 paper. So not really very memories, much memory at all. And she got me to read it out as often as I could to myself. So over the last few weeks, initially, I couldn't even read it without breaking into sort of uncontrollable sobbing. But now I can't even be bothered to read it. I'm sick to the death of it. What I did was I just read it at least four or five times a day and I read it out loud of my memory. And it's that that's managed to sort of enable my memory to instead of the memories being fragmented to make it into a, a, a jigsaw puzzle, if you like. And the ending was that I'm still here instead of the memory being, which my memory, and when I was asleep in the middle of the night, my memory was then I was at a funeral and it was my funeral. And then I could see my wake. And we now know that hasn't happened because I have survived. So we've changed the ending of my memory, which is actually I have survived, I am alive, and I haven't had to have my own funeral. Um, so that has hugely, hugely helped me by writing down what my memories were and now what the outcome is, which is that I am still alive. And I would say that's really helped writing all of that down. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds incredibly powerful uh, um, for you and, and, and technique as well. And um, I have previously said in the group and written a blog post about something called expressive writing, which is, it doesn't, it's not exactly what you've done, um, but it sounds very similar, which is where you write down a traumatic experience. Uh, I think it's for three or four days on the trot. You repeat the same thing for 15, 20 yes. minutes. And then that in some way helps you process that memory, which sounds very sound similar. It does sound very similar. That's exactly done. it. And, my memories, I thought, were huge of the event. You know, I can remember, for example, them putting the the line in my neck in intensive care. I can remember that. Um, I can remember some of the nurses' faces. I can remember some of the conversations. I can remember arresting during my ICD fitting and then one of the doctors doing something called a precordial thump when you thump your chest. 
I can remember all of that. Mm -hmm. But actually, when you write down my memories, they are very, very small of the event, whereas mine were much more dramatized and bigger. And the ending was always death. Whereas now that's my memory trying to piece everything together. Um, the, The end is not death. The end is actually I am still here. I am blessed. I'm now, you know, I've got a life ahead of me. Um, and there is life after cardiac arrest. It is not the end. I've been given a second chance at life, um, which hopefully many people feel that they have all been given a second chance at life. Yeah, it's, it's not always easy to see that, though, is it? Of course it isn't. And like I keep saying, you know, this is 18 months on and I still have bad days now. You know, I don't want anybody to feel that, you know, for a split second that there isn't a probably half a day that goes past where I don't think of what happened to me. You know, it will constantly be there for me. Hopefully, as time goes on, um, that feeling of rawness will disappear. Um, But there isn't, like I said, there isn't hours that go past where I don't think of what happened to me. The difference now is I used to, for example, drive to work and think today's the day I'm going to die again. I don't now feel that. So it that's that's with counselling and time that you can you can come to terms with the fact I'm not going to drop down dead any minute. Yes, it happened to me 18 months ago. Yes, for whatever reason I was chosen to have a cardiac arrest, but I was also chosen that it wasn't my time and that I am going to survive and hopefully have many more happy years to come. I'm hopefully, sure you yeah. will. <laughs> <laughs> Um, just, just to touch on the on the counselling bit, if you are a member of our group and you haven't managed to get counselling through the sort of normal NHS uh, routes, which I know they're under a lot of strain these days, you can, thanks to um, SADS UK, get f- six free sessions with a, a local, um, I can't remember what, it's BACP, I think, a British British uh, Association of Counselling, is it? <laughs> Something like that, yeah. But you, you, you so if if you feel like you really need it and you can't get it through your GP, um, do do contact ads and uh, you can get some that way. Um, and you touched on the sort of back back in the hospital there mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, we sort of didn't really finish off that. You, you, you were in hospital, I think you said eight or nine yes. days. So, and you you mentioned about having an ICD. Could you sort of just uh, briefly talk about your, your your time in hospital and what they did while you were there, and to establish what had happened and so we uh, now, the resulting yeah, outcome? We now know um, that I was in long QT, which was medication induced. I have Crohn's disease, um, and I was on uh, medication for my Crohn's, which sent me into long QT. Um, we now. <laughs> Hindsight, again, is a wonderful thing. Um, So I can remember being in hospital. I can remember before having my ICD fitted that they kept my heart rate low to obviously to protect me. I can remember the nurse and me looking at the monitor and telling my friend, who's also a nurse, who came to see me in hospital, that the nurses and doctors were trying to kill me because look at my heart rate. Um, Obviously, I was confused. and I and my husband says I, he had many an interesting conversation and phone call with me. Ironically, at the time, you think you're so 
coherent and you know exactly what you're saying but actually I wasn't coherent at all I hadn't got a clue what I was saying um you know as a nurse 20 years I'm hoping that my colleagues aren't trying to kill me but I remember the time <laughs> truly thinking that they're, they're trying to kill me in here because look at my heart rate that's not safe to have a heart rate of 30 um obviously we now know why they were doing that before so they placed an ICD um, in me and I was discharged home the next day um, with a leaflet um, telling me not to have um, not to go deep sea diving um, or three magnets um, just a British Heart Foundation leaflet so again I'd never I, I had worked on emergency assessment units but I hadn't really had anything to do particularly with patients who had pacemakers because they always go down a cardiac rehab route. So again, all of a sudden, I've got this ICD in me, um, and I didn't know what it was doing. Um, I had a lot of sort of pain in my arm when it first was in. Um, I can remember the first time I moved in bed and I felt it move. I thought I was going to have another cardiac arrest. I didn't know that they moved and you could feel them move. I can remember being absolutely petrified. Um, and again, ringing a friend who uh, works in Echoes and and saying, are they supposed to move? I think it's become dislodged um, because unfortunately I wasn't or my memory doesn't recall being told anything about this ICD when it was placed in me. Um, so, again, whether that's memory being poor or whether but I don't recall anybody going through anything particularly with me. I was just given a piece of paper and told to keep it in my wallet, um, you know, so that people know I had an ICD. Um, and that was really the crux of it and a British Heart Foundation leaflet. Yeah, I, th- I think you, you touched on a lot of things there with the, uh, when we get one of these uh, devices implanted into us, we're not in the in the most coherent states, no, are we? And any information that we, we are told, we're qu- probably quite likely to forget exactly. it anyway. Uh, and it is it's it's just one amongst many things going through our heads, which is or through our brains, which is in perhaps a, a compromised state anyway. Um, it's yeah, it's a shame. And I think you said earlier that you didn't get a, a follow up. So I was seen the in the ICD clinic in the February, um, but initially I didn't have any contact with anybody. I just literally was given a British Heart Foundation leaflet about ICDs um and I remember t- the most important thing was don't go deep sea diving um well <laughs> <laughs> had you had you got that plan <laughs> I've personally never been deep sea diving in my life but um yeah and that was sort of the crux of it so I didn't know anything about what it was doing or what it meant or obviously I had a vague degree because I was a nurse so I knew what it was but as most nurses and doctors will tell you we make the world's worst patients and when it's you, it doesn't register at all. So, you know, it's different completely when it's you. Your your nursing hat doesn't tend to come on as much because you are then the patient and you're just as frightened as anybody else, um, just as vulnerable as anybody else. So um, I was then, when I went back to the clinic in the February, I was given a home monitor box. Um, so I do have a Boston Scientific home monitor box um, and they do downloads. I think it's about every nine, ten weeks. And I just always get a letter to say your download was fine. 
um, and I'm actually not being seen in, in ICD clinic for uh, about two years because I've got this home monitor box. Um, I am a real technophobe. So when we initially set it up, I just couldn't get my head round that this was all registering in Oxford um, and that they would contact me if anything went wrong. But thank goodness for medical technology and that we don't have to go for, you know, regular hospital appointments as regards to my ICD. Mm-hmm. Well, it's strange that you've, uh, well, I've got a, a Boston as well and a, a Latitude home monitor box as well. But I, I understand that mine does a download every night or every couple of nights and uh, they will alert me if uh, anything is uh, amiss basically. And I, I have to go to the hospital every year, but uh, every six months I have uh, a remote checkup where they go through if anything has, has um been flagged up in their system but it just shows to show each hospital or each area mm. has got their own different rules haven't they but you're saying you're not going to be seeing, yeah. seeing a hospital for I two think years my understanding is if anything went wrong it would alert at my hospital and they would contact me so you know yes it may well do a download every night it probably does but it doesn't flag up unless something goes wrong in which case they would then contact me um, so initially I was offered either I could come back to clinic every three to six months um, or I could have a home monitor box and would only have to go back every two years. So I just said, right, I'll have a home monitor box and just come every two years. Um, and then I just get mm-hmm. um, letters sort of every few months to say we've done a download, we've checked your ICD, everything's fine. So, um, yeah, it's obviously all done very remotely and I'm not even aware you know, that they've done it. Um, again, initially, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't get my head around, well, what if I stay away the night? What if what, do I have to take the box with me? Um, obviously, again, as time's gone on, um, I have contacted them. I'm, I'm going on holiday this summer and I've contacted them and said I'm away for this amount of time, but they haven't advised that I need to take my monitor box with me. Um, and again, I was very worried initially because I couldn't actually sleep in our bedroom because that's where the arrest happened. So I spent many a night on the sofa and I was worried because I was away from my box. So it was six of one, half a dozen of the other. But again, as time's gone on, I've relaxed about that and realised, you know, hopefully my OCD isn't going to go off. And if it does, I've got an internal device that will shock me. And... um yeah, well, just going on the the monitor thing, I think the understanding is, oops, me, unless you're away for a prolonged period, more than I don't know, two or three weeks, that generally they don't advise you to take it, and that uh, I think the thing feeling is if if something's gone wrong uh, with your device, there's not a lot they can do about it anyway. If they're miles That's away, that's my from understanding you. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you know, odd nights. Not that I spend many nights away from home, but obviously odd nights or like I said sleeping down on the sofa when I'm not near my box um or you know a night away it's not going to affect you know anything no. it's not but again initially I was so worried but that's all lack of ignorance on my part and not being given the information um you know you're you've just gone through as we previously discussed the most traumatic event of your life you're given huge amounts of information at a time when your memory is extremely poor, you're traumatized, um, and you really probably don't don't 
process the information that you're given in hospital. You don't, you don't process it at all um, because it just doesn't sink in as to what's happened to you and to what you need to do. You just don't. So with uh, what's your experience been since um, you've left the hospital with your, well, with your ICD, say, because I know, I know that you, uh, from a couple of your posts that you did in the, um, in the group, you've had a little bit of sort of uh, up and down experience, not necessarily with it per se, but uh, some other things around yeah, it. Yeah, I just, unfortunately, I think the NHS is beyond amazing at fixing people. We are, um, the NHS is there when we need them um, and we're all living proof of that. Follow-up aftercare is often in the NHS where there is a downfall um, and there isn't the support there. Um, it's due to patient demand. Obviously, there aren't enough doctors um, to to see the amount of patients um, that they need to see. Um, you do feel, and I'm sure many other people feel like this, you feel extremely alone when you first come out. Um, you, you can't, you've got very limited contact. Um, so yes, you're given a couple of numbers, but they work nine to five, Monday to Friday. Well, we all know that your worries aren't nine to five Monday to Friday. It's often a weekend or two o'clock in the morning. And that's when you really need to contact somebody to say, I felt my ICD move, for example, but there's nobody to contact. Um, so um, I was offered no cardiac rehab. Um, I was offered no counselling. It's only because I went sort of through the back doorway. Um, no particular, not to see an ICD nurse. I was just seen in clinic by a technician. So there was no follow-up support at all. I was a 41-year-old that had just died for eight minutes and hadn't got the support, the follow-up. Um, but that's unfortunately the pressures of the NHS in follow-up aftercare post-cardiac arrest. And we know um, from experience and other survivors that unfortunately this is where the, the NHS falls down, um, is, our, is our post-care is often non-existent. Um, my care I cannot fault it was amazing um, the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford which we're about 30 minutes from so I'm very blessed it's a world-renowned hospital that I was very close to however the the follow-up aftercare and, and contact is is I will say is poor unfortunately it is yeah it's uh, unfortunately a familiar story <laughs> hopefully things can get better if uh we apply the pressure in the right places and also let people know that things aren't aren't so great for a lot of people. I'm sure there are, but I've heard of other people who are, uh, do have good experiences. So it's, it is a little bit of a lottery. Yes, it is. It is. It's a postcode lottery, um, you know, but the NHS is there when we need them to fix us. And, you know, thank God they are there to fix us. Um, but, you know, I don't know how, like you say, applying the pressure to, to get the the follow-up aftercare but I think it's a lot of it is due to patient demand um and we know the pressures within the NHS um and you know whether that's only going to get worse as we become older in an aging population I don't know what the answer is I don't um anyway um so how did you um sort of help yourself I know you joined the group I think it was about March in 2018 how, how did you get to know about the group um, I didn't um a friend of mine who 
um, works as a cardiac physiologist. So she does echoes, ECGs, cardiac investigations. She um, she said, oh, look, I found this group on Facebook for you. And I thought, oh, do I really need to join a support group? And I thought, oh, okay, I'll join it. Um, so she actually found it for me and added me to the group. Um, there aren't enough words to say the support that I've received from the group and people in the group and from meeting people at the um, the event last June. Um, like I said, I don't feel I would be where I am today if I hadn't got the peer support from other cardiac arrest survivors. Um, so it's been an absolute, like I say, lifeline for me, the group. The irony is often it's people, obviously, I've met quite a lot of members of the group, but the irony is quite a lot of members I haven't met or haven't met, um, yet they were my absolute lifeline of people that I've never met. And ironically, in any other walk of life, we never would have come across each other, yet they have become dear, dear friends, which is just amazing, amazing. Yeah, I mean, that. That's the power power of social media at its best, I guess. Yes, it is. It is. Um, you know, one of the Lawrence Edwards, for example, um, who's become a good friend who I met again at the um the event last June. Um we've have we got anything in common? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Lawrence, sort of sixty something year old man, lives in Scotland, some miles away from me. No other time would our would our paths have crossed. Yeah, I now count him as a friend. Chris Solomon, again, no other time would our paths have crossed. You, Paul, no other time in life would our paths have crossed. Ingrid, Seth, I could name so many names, and in no other circumstances would our paths have crossed. But hopefully, you know, and I'm sure hopefully you all feel the same, we're friends for life now by some absolute sheer horrific event. It's brought us together um and hopefully you know we'll keep that friendship for the future absolutely absolutely i mean i think that's one of the now the group has got sort of uh over 1200 people in and the group we're talking about if you're listening to this podcast for the first time and i'm not exactly aware what group aware of what group we're talking about and that's southern cardiac arrest uk there is a website southern cardiac uk.org you can go to in the facebook group um, which is uh, facebook.com slash groups slash um, Southern Cardiac RS UK. Uh, it's a peer support group. It's just a group within Facebook. And as you were saying, you, you have got lots of uh, friends now who are uh, people all over the country and from all different backgrounds and circumstances. I think that's perhaps one of the beauties of of the group is that there are so many different people's uh, pe- types of people in the group, but also types of event they've experienced that means that although your event is unique um there will be other people who have got similar experiences to you and you you can uh share those experiences together and uh, you know was it um an experience shared is halved or some of the pain i can't remember the exact phrase i'm sure you can know what i'm talking about but because there are other people who have been there and done that and and gone through the pain that you have gone through and come out the other side, as it were, or processed it, it, it can give you hope as well, especially if you're early in your, your recovery process. I think that's correct. It's, I think the biggest thing is when you first 
deal with it, then it's just the enormity is almost too much to to comprehend. You know, for some sheer twist of fate, somebody near us knew how to do CPR. Um, we know basic CPR saves lives. We know that. Um, yet, you know, the support from my peers, I've been part of many Crohn's groups on social media over the years and taken myself off because I've found them very negative. Um, there's always somebody in there that's quite critical. Um, I haven't come across that at all on Sudden Cardiac Arrest UK. Everybody is so empathetic and compassionate towards each other um, because we've been through the most terrifying, serious thing that you could even begin to comprehend. So if anybody's going to be there for each other, it's other cardiac arrest survivors. And let's not forget their partners too, because again, the trauma on the partner, you know, of often who have done CPR on their loved one is huge. You know, I always say in a, in a hospital environment after a cardiac arrest, there's a full team debrief afterwards, even for qualified professionals, how traumatic it is to do CPR on somebody. So we would have a full team debrief afterwards about how the event went. Is there anything we could have done better? Um, is there anything we would have changed? And yet the partners, um, the, the partner survivors, um, are again left with trying to come to terms with trying to bring somebody back to life. They've done it successfully. But again, the trauma to them of, of what they've had to witness and had to deal with as well is huge. Um, you know, as my husband, Stuart, always says, you know, for many, many months, he didn't sleep. Every time I sort of made a noise, he'd sit bolt upright in bed to make sure that I wasn't, you know, having another cardiac arrest. The impact on them is massive, massive. Absolutely. I don't think that can be understated either. And that, did, 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 did he get any help, any sort of debrief, as you mentioned, that you have in the... Uh... In the hospital, no, nothing, of, you know, nothing. I, I mean, think, obviously, no. everybody was praising him and saying how amazing. And you know, often quite a lot of friends and family said they wouldn't have known what to do. How did you know what to do? Um, and you know, Stuart's done many CPR courses with work. Um, he did his Royal Marines training, so he he did it there. Um, he did Boy Scouts and so learnt it there. So he'd done many courses over the years. Um, and done CPR but obviously it's completely different doing it in real life um, and then obviously we've gone on to, to set up the charity ourselves but Stuart decided he didn't want any counselling um, I wanted him to have some but he said he didn't want any and um, obviously I respected that and he just felt that by us keep talking about the event um, which I feel is the biggest thing is that you do as hard as it is you have to keep talking about the event to be able to process it, to move on. You know, don't keep it all inside. Don't feel that you've got to be the hero and and to trying to deal with this because it is it is absolutely massive of the fact of what and trying to process what's happened to us and to partners and to their children as well and family. It's huge, huge. It is indeed. It is, and I think that's. Uh... I've, I've tweeted several times about this to to the I know, what I think are the powers that be, the resus council about we, we're encouraging lots and lots of people to do CPR and gain the skills and have AEDs 
in placed in schools and things like that. But is any thought is actually being given to people who do CPR? Are we are we having a, a, a counselling sessions and a specialised debriefing mm. for them? As far as I'm aware, there there isn't anything, um, and I think that's part of the puzzle that's yeah, missing. Yeah, massively really. it, is. it is. And like I said, you know, even for medical professionals doing it on a patient that's you know you have no emotional connection with um is hugely traumatic let alone doing it on you know your spouse or your your loved one you know the impact for the for that person is huge it is huge one of the other things that you've done since your your arrest was uh you got to meet your yes. saviors um can you tell me a little yeah, bit about so that again um via the patient and liaison service um again i wanted to meet um my saviors um, Lou, Sophie and Danny and the call handler, Claire. Um, I wanted to meet them just to basically say thank you. So again, I went via East Midlands Ambulance um, and contacted the, the press liaison officer. And um, we, obviously some paramedics don't feel that they want to meet the survivor. Um, again, they had to come in on their own time. So I was well aware that, you know, They've got other commitments that they might not be able to meet me. Um, so I was just elated when they came back and said, yes, they'd love to meet you. So um, on July the 2nd, so seven months after my cardiac arrest, um, the call handler came down from Lincoln, which is, you know, a good sort of two and a half, three hours from where we live. That's where the 999 call went through to. Um, and I met the three paramedics that helped to save my life. Um, we met at a local ambulance station. Um, I can tell you there wasn't a dry eye in the house. So as we walked in, um, obviously myself, Stuart, and all of them, we were all crying. We found it hugely, hugely emotional. Um, for many weeks beforehand, I kept wondering, and I have seen posts about what do you buy them? What can you give somebody to say, thank you for saving my life? And I actually decided in the end not to take anything because I couldn't decide what to buy. I mean, a mug or a pin or whatever just seemed ridiculous to give to somebody for saving my life. And actually, I'm glad I didn't take anything because as as a nurse myself, the praise you get of saving somebody's life is beyond anything that anybody can physically give you, um, you know, as a token gesture. So um, it was a hugely emotional day. Um, and again, I personally and Stuart did, we found it hugely um, beneficial to, again, put some closure to the actual event. Um, they were also able to fill in some of the pieces um as to what happened on that night they were able to tell me for example they just pulled into Brackley ambulance station um I remember Lou one of the paramedics saying that she had tinsel in her hair and as she walked up the stairs she saw my children she ripped this tinsel out of her hair because she felt that it wasn't appropriate to stand there with tinsel in her hair when their mum was lying dead on the floor um but it just hugely helped me. She said after they came out of A&E, she said they both sat in the ambulance and cried. Um, 
and, and they couldn't go to the next job for a little while because, again, they were so traumatised by what they just had to do. So, again, it proves even for medical, you know, experienced paramedics how traumatic it is for them to do CPR on a, on a 41-year-old woman. Um, obviously, at the time, they didn't know I was a nurse. Um, but, you know, again, to do it to another healthcare professional, hindsight is probably even more traumatic. But at the time, they didn't know I was a nurse. I was just a 41-year-old lady. And they obviously could see how traumatised it was for my children and my husband. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I would, I, yeah. if you can, arrange to meet your paramedics and call handler. Um, my call handler had only been live on the phones for four weeks, bless her. Um, I think off the top of my head, she said I was the first cardiac arrest that she talked herself through. Um, and even, which was amazing, I went to a community first responders conference last year. Um, Anne and John Johnny invited me along. And one of the call handlers um, came up to me and said I was the manager in the call centre that night and we were all listening to your cardiac arrest, willing you to survive. So that, again, was amazing just to even meet somebody else from the from the call handler um, office that had been hearing my arrest at the time as well. Oh, wow. It must, it must have been great to meet her yes, as well. Yes, it was. And, uh... It was. And it's amazing now because she's on my Facebook and um a couple of the paramedics are on my facebook and um so we sort of chat back and forward and again amazing for them to be able to see you know what their actions you know has enabled me to do basically Whew. i was getting a little bit oh, emotional oh. listening to that. <laughs> it was i mean i sobbed uncontrollably as did danny um who was a senior paramedic sophie and lou and claire um it was the most amazing meetup it was absolutely incredible incredible and i would recommend to anybody it does help give you closure it does definitely um we did have some local press come along as well um and took some photographs and the sort of local paper as well um because obviously again you don't even for paramedics they don't often get to meet their cardiac arrest survivor um one of the paramedics, he'd only ever met one previous survivor and the other two paramedics had never met a cardiac arrest survivor. So, you know, from a professional point of view, extremely emotional for them as well. Mm-hmm. I think I think you're dead right. And it, it, it's only a win-win really because, uh, as you sort of uh, mentioned before, it's essentially the pinnacle of your career, Some saving someone's life, isn't it, if you're a medical professional? Of course professional, it is. So. Of course it is. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, if you can meet up with them, I, I would really encourage people to, to do that, to to look somebody in the eye, you know, to know that. And the last time they saw you, you were unconscious and, you know, having CPR done on you and, and being shocked by a defibrillator. Mm-hmm. And it's probably worth putting it in context that, yeah, the majority of these uh, cases don't end uh, with a favourable outcome. Exactly, so as, as we're all aware, uh, you know, only 7%. I think sometimes it's a bit sketchy, is it, between 7 and 8%? Uh, uh, yeah, I think the last sort of official figure I I tend to go by is from a 2014 Recess Council report, and it mentions 8.6% within England, I think it is. Um, yeah, so, so it's pretty poor statistics. It, it, um, I mean... 
as time's gone on, and obviously we've chatted to various paramedics, they always say to us, you know, they do have a sense of um, relief if they get to an event and somebody's already started CPR on that person because obviously many situations they arrive to a cardiac arrest and somebody's been down for a long period of time and nobody's even attempted CPR on them. So, you know, they they say they do feel, you know, a sense of relief when somebody has already started CPR um, on that person. And we know, you know, we're all living proof that you don't need a medical degree to do CPR. It's one of the most basic life-saving skills that you can teach people. Yeah, it is. I certainly back that up, and that my my meeting of uh, with with uh, my saviors was an incredible experience as well, and it put the uh, as I said, put uh, another piece yeah. in the puzzle. Like you say, it gives you yes. closure. Yeah, I, I do wonder how how soon you should actually see them, though, because I think yeah, I saw mine at the end of November. And mine was in uh, April. Uh, it's a similar sort of time frame to mine. So yeah, yeah I think. Seven months was long enough period of time. I don't think initially because you need to be stronger emotionally in yourself as well. Um, you know, I don't think initially you're just so overwhelmed with everything. You need to come to terms with things yourself before you then take that next step. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I would recommend it. I would. Yep. Okay, when sort of talking about, um, well, you've touched on it a couple of times about uh, a, a charity that you've set up, and uh, yeah. part of the reason why I wanted you to, wanted to speak to you on the podcast is because you, you've done uh, some amazing work since your cardiac arrest, and I just wondered if you could uh, tell yeah, us about so that. Initially, um, I went back to work beginning of March, end of February, beginning of March, and. Um, Quite a few friends and relatives said, oh, God, we wouldn't have known what to do, Stuart. We, you know, how amazing was he? And, of course, he is amazing. So um, a local friend of mine called Lynn runs her own resuscitation company. So I asked her if she would run a session for friends and family. And she said, of course I would. So we had 30 friends and family and our local Brackley Rugby Club gave us the venue and we ran a two-hour session and we talked friends and family. I asked another friend who's a cardiac rehab nurse if she'd just come along and help out when we break into groups and she said, of course I will. So we ran the two-hour session and at the end of the session, Kath said, well, that was easy. Why don't we Why don't we get trained up? And I said, oh, don't be so ridiculous. I said, we can't teach CPR. She said, yeah, we can. I said, oh, there won't be much of interest. I don't know. I don't know. How wrong could I have been? So we contacted the British Heart Foundation and we contacted a local Heart Start um, community who happened to be a paramedic as well. And Kath and I wrote a lesson plan um, and he came along and we set up our own session and we were signed off as being competent. With that, obviously, Heart Start is a free initiative, and we decided that we would try and buy a defibrillator for our local town. So we thought if we asked for a £10 donation from each person, that we would uh, buy this defibrillator. So uh, we thought realistically it would take us about a year, um, because give or take, it's about £1,450 with the cabinet and the defib. 
Um, by the July, we were installing our first defib and social media, again, was our best friend. And the uptake was absolutely incredible of local people saying, I want to learn, I want to learn, I want to learn. Um, to date, we've taught nearly 600 people CPR and we've raised uh, over £11,000 in just over a year. Um, we mm. asked for this £10 donation. So we all work, I work four days a week, so does Kath, but Stuart and Jude, who are the other members of the group, work full time. Um, and then another friend, Mark, who's a paramedic, but unfortunately he's emigrated back to Australia. Um, and we set up fundraising. So we've done charity golf days. Um, we set up an online auction and, and that raised about £1,200. Um, I contacted all the local primary schools. So I had seven local primary schools um, wearing denim for the day. We called it denim for defib. And we asked them all to, to generate a pound donation. Um, I contacted local companies and asked them, would they be willing to give us any money towards defibs? Um, so we're just placing our seventh one um, in Brackley, um, which is going on the new um, pub, which is going to be done by the end of July, hopefully. Once we place mm -hmm. this one, we will be the first heart-safe town in the East Midlands, which means we'll have a defibrillator every 700 metres within Brackley, which is our local town. And from there, we're now rippling out towards the villages um, because even today I've been in conversation with a parish council this morning and we're going to place one in a local village called King Sutton. Um, so it's a, it's been a huge rippling effect. Um, we set up a Facebook page called Do It For Defib um we've we're on twitter uh, we haven't got an email uh, email address no so not email address a um website that's it thank you <laughs> we haven't got a website <laughs> um but it's just the response has just been phenomenal since we've placed the defibs we know that six times our defibs have had to have been um used um there's only one that's actually been a cardiac arrest, which myself and Stuart ironically were involved in. Um, however, they have been advised by the ambulance service six times um, to 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 get four patients because there's a there's a thought that the patient will go into cardiac arrest. So um, we always said the first time when one of our defibs would be used would be the turning point ironically we didn't think it would be Stuart and I personally using it on a patient uh, but the response has been phenomenal and it's opened up so many doors it's made us so many amazing new friends um, and I Stuart and I both say that our road to recovery has often been from the do it for defib charity because of the work that we're doing um, by changing other people's lives as well and to hopefully that another patient if they were to be in the same situation I was in that there would be a defibrillator there to shock them and I can look another relative in the eye and know that something we've done has meant that they've still got their relative absolutely I mean you, you've done absolutely fantastic in uh, yeah. I guess well, we couldn't have done it without local support the support has just been incredible it has um Again, social media is very easy to get in touch with people. Um, our site, it's almost a bit like Where's Wally? So even if people haven't come on our courses, we get people to upload 
where they've seen a defib. Well, we've had it from as far as, you know, Australia through to the furthest point of Ireland. Um, children upload defibs on there, so they're recognising them when they're out and about, that huge, great big yellow box that people used to just walk past and not register. People now see them and think, actually, they're not something to be frightened of. They will tell you exactly what to do. Um, obviously, we all know that CPR alone will not bring your patient back to life. It's a holding mechanism. It's the defibrillator that will shock the heart back into a normal rhythm again. Um, so the CPR, of course, it's massively important, but it's a holding mechanism. It's the defibrillator which will which will shock the heart back into a normal rhythm. So um, you've make it sound also oh, oh easy. Is it so easy get pulling all this together? And uh, what about the the actual um, defibs and the, the cases and and where you cite yeah. them all? How do you go about Our that? Our learning curve has gone up hugely. We're two nurses, uh, somebody who works in business, and an engineer. So we're not used to doing any of this fundraising. Um, none of us are particularly very IT literate. Um, so all of this has been a huge learning curve for us as well. East Midlands Ambulance has been a huge support to us, as has SAG UK. So we get our cabinets from SAG UK, and they've been a wealth of knowledge to us as well. Um, the fundraising part, obviously, we just do this in our evenings and weekends um, and contact local people to hopefully help to support us. We've placed a few charity tins in local pubs, et cetera, as well. Um, and we've got our cabinets from from SAD, so they will point you in the right direction. Um, at the moment, cabinets do need an electrical supply to them. The actual defib doesn't, but the cabinet does, and it costs around £15 a year to run a cabinet. Obviously, in lots of places, we do need permission um, to place the cabinets, but we're shortly placing a cabinet in somebody's front garden, and there is a prototype we're just waiting for, which will be a thermal blanket, um, which will go over the defib, um, which SADs are also um, inquiring about as well, so that if if there isn't a local electrical supply, because this is the problem, is placing the cabinets. Um, but this thermal blanket will hopefully mean that the cabinet doesn't need an electrical supply. So we'll open huge amounts of doors to areas that can have cabinets and defibs placed instead of an electrical supply. Um, and it will keep the defibrillator at a constant temperature, um, which will just be fantastic. Um, the fundraising parts, again, be brave, contact local companies, contact people. People are very willing and, and, and generous in what they do. You just have to be brave to contact them and not be frightened if they say no. Contact somebody else. As I sort of said to Paul earlier this morning, my biggest fear, as many people's or most people's fear, is death. We've already faced that death. So now, Nothing else is frightening because I've faced my biggest fear. So if somebody shouts or says, no, that's okay, we'll just move on to another person. You know, use use your utter, utter devastation to move forward and do something positive rather than dwell in the past because it is horrific. We cannot change the past, but what we can do is shape and hopefully move forward for future and look forward to saving other people's lives. 
Um, and, you know, I am extremely proud of what we've achieved in a very short space of time. Um, like I said, Stuart and I were personally involved in a cardiac arrest situation where um, somebody we know's relative went into cardiac arrest. And whilst they were waiting for the ambulance, Stuart and I were called um, to, to help do CPR. And Stuart and I did 11 minutes of CPR on this gentleman. Um, we actually, he he did survive but died later in hospital but what it meant was that we could look that family in the eye and know that something we did meant that they got to say goodbye to him in hospital rather than during a cardiac arrest situation at his home yeah i mean wow um it must have been incredibly hard for you to actually uh... Well, I, I think it would be hard, but you're, you're probably the second person I've spoken to then who's who's been a, a receiver and a giver of CPR. How, how was it yeah, for you um, giving CPR? Just, I just got in from a 12-hour day at work when I received a call to say, Charlotte, help, he's in cardiac arrest. Ironically, we had a defib in our dining room that was about to be placed on the new community hall. So I screamed Stuart, who was in the kitchen, to and he grabbed the defib which was still all in the box and um, we jumped in the car and the person lived about three four minutes from where we live um when we arrived at the house the ambulance had already been called um and we ran upstairs and again as with most things it was just so surreal so i started chest compressions while Stuart got the defib out the box and then we just kept alternating with him doing chest compressions and me doing chest compressions. After the event, obviously, once the paramedics arrived, um, I did burst into tears, as did Stuart, because, again, we just couldn't believe that the first time one of our defibs was used was Stuart and I using it on somebody's relative that we knew as well. Um, but, again, we didn't sort of initially the next day. Yes, of course, we found it extremely emotional and traumatic. And Stuart does joke with me that he's more qualified than I am because he's done CPR twice in the community, whereas I've only done it once. Yeah. <laughs> so he does joke that he's more qualified than I am. But yeah. you know, <laughs> for whatever reason, that gentleman was, uh, I believe, 83, that he was, that was his time. Um, Obviously, I have been involved in many cardiac arrest situations in a hospital environment. I'm very blessed. That's the first time I've had to do it in a community environment, which is quite different when you haven't got a whole team of people around you and a whole team of equipment or a whole, you know, influx of equipment behind you. Um, but our drive is constantly hopefully to to change people's lives and to make people's lives you know, like my life is now that, you know, life does go on after cardiac arrest um, and we can hopefully change somebody else's life and they will also be here to tell the tale like I am. Mm -hmm. Paying it forward in a big way. And it's it, it, like you've said, it also uh, it's a big win for you as well. It gives a lot of uh, pleasure to, to you to be able to, because in some ways we we shouldn't be here or we weren't destined to be here and we are now to be able to help someone exactly. else 
have a chance of life again is uh, is amazingly great I wouldn't feeling. have done any of this had I not had my cardiac arrest. We wouldn't. We'd have done none of this. Um, so to look, you know, the, those other six events and of people that have come on our courses, four people so far have had to do CPR on somebody. You know, so in in just over a year, sort of 14 months, four people that we've taught have known what to do in that situation and have, have done CPR on somebody. So, you know, like I, I don't want people to think for a minute that any of this has come easily because it hasn't. And there are still, like I said now, there are still hugely emotional days for myself, for Stuart, for the children. Um, you know, none of this has come easily. It hasn't. And, you know, it will continue to be hard at times. Of course it is. But our drive is hopefully to to save somebody else's life and to, to help another relative. And, you know, even if the situation isn't a positive one, that you did the best you could in that situation. Because we know for whatever reason, sometimes, you know, life is cruel and your time is up. And it just means that it's nothing that you haven't tried to do in that event. We're just blessed that for whatever reason, we were given a second chance. Um, but unfortunately, yes, it is, you know, nothing that you have said or done would have changed the event. You've done the best you can. Very well put. And um, well, hopefully one, one day, maybe in the future, we'll get to, uh, or you'll get to, you and Stuart will get to meet one of your um one of the people that your your program and your charity has has helped save, exactly. and uh, maybe at one of one of our meetups, like last year or the or the one coming up, it, we, we, you've sort of touched on the um, the the Guinness World Record event last year, and I just wanted to put that in context of of the event coming up as well. Do, so could you tell me about um, your feelings about going to the Guinness World Record event last year, and then? And what happened there and uh, and other things that have come out of that? So I was only six months post-cardiac arrest myself. And Stuart actually kept saying, why don't we go? Why don't we go? And I said, because I think it would just be really somber. It would be really boring. I don't want to keep going over about it. Um, yeah, let's not bother. I said, why do I want to meet a load of strangers? And Stuart said, yeah, you're right. Let's not bother. Anyway, it got to about three weeks before the event and Stuart said, why don't we go? He said, it's just a night away. He said, it'll do us good. He said, if it's boring, we'll just go back to the hotel. I said, oh, go on then. All right, we'll go to the event. Oh, my goodness. How wrong could I have been? Um, to say the event was life changing is an understatement. To meet that many survivors was just simply overwhelming. And like I mentioned previously, They've become lifelong friends now and who I talk to quite regularly. Um, so if anybody's even remotely umming and ahhing and considering whether to come or not, I cannot emphasise enough to you how much you will gain from the event. Not just me, but from a, a survivor's husband's point of view as well. We still now quite often talk about it. And again, Stuart says how much he got from the event from from you know other partners as well Stuart chats again to other partners um and the support for him was just phenomenal as well so you know 
if you're remotely considering it's going to be a somber event, um, I don't really want to keep going over it. I don't want to keep talking about it. I don't actually recall many of us really chatting about our actual arrest during the day. I don't. Yes, obviously, we all chatted when your arrest was, but there was no pressure at all to to talk about your own personal situation. Um, if you wanted to, of course, you could. But if you didn't want to, there was no pressure at all. It was just a very relaxed, informal affair of meeting people that simply got how you've been feeling. We felt so alone for six months. And then all of a sudden, it was like this huge can of worms opened. And we suddenly realised, completely not feeling alone. Um, I just can't even begin to tell you how much you will get from the event. Um, so please, please, please come along, meet fellow survivors, get that support because you will not only meet people on that day, but you will meet lifelong support and friends. Um, it was the most wonderful event. Um, we ended up sitting up until I think we were one of the last to bed at half past one in the morning. But equally, some people tottered off early evening because they were felt a bit overwhelmed um, and tired, etc. And that too is also okay. There is no judgment there at all about you know the day and about how you feel you want to get from the day. So you know, please, please come along and make friends for life, and you know, draw comfort from the fact that you're not alone. Yes, you are that eight percent. But actually, on that day, you're not. It's 100% of, of support from other people. So come. Yeah, what better advertisement could we have for the event than that, eh? <laughs> hopefully, I mean, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> huh? I mean, you, you got the, the name of the event in there a couple of times, Not Alone, which is if, if you are listening to this and you haven't um, heard about it so far, hopefully you would have seen things in the group uh, or on the website. But on the September Saturday, the September the twenty eighth, uh, twenty nineteen, uh, we're having a big meet up at the uh, Barnsdale Hall Hotel, which is near Oakham on Rutland Water. So it's a very central location to for the UK or for England especially. Um, if you're, I think it's about an hour and a half from London, or an hour and a half from Birmingham. Um, probably two hours from Manchester, uh, Liverpool, that sort of, those sort of places. And there's an airport, the East Midlands Airport, which is about 40 minutes, I believe, away. So it's, it should be fairly accessible by most people in the country. But if you're abroad and you're listening to this, uh, we welcome anyone to come along. It doesn't have to be a, a UK survivor. And uh, what we've got going on is during the day, um, We've got a whole bunch of talks and interactive sessions with some of the um, leading uh, protagonists in cardiac arrest survival. And that's uh, Tom, Dr. Tom Keeble. Um, there's going to be a talk by Doc, uh, Professor Barbara Wilson, who's a world expert on neuropsychological rehabilitation. Um, and one of her colleagues, uh, Donna Malley from... Uh, the Oliver Zangwell um, Rehab Centre, which is in Cambridge, and she's going to be doing a, 
a session on uh, fatigue and coping with fatigue. And she's one of the co-authors of uh, the charity Headway's book on fatigue. So she certainly knows her stuff. Um, we've got a couple of other cardiologists, Dr. John Davis, who works with Tom at the Essex Cardiothoracic Centre, and uh, Dr. Andrew Grace, who uh, works in Cambridge and is uh, an expert on um, electrophysiology um, and SICDs, I believe, in particular, and and AFib, although we're not, our group isn't, I don't think there's that many people with AFib, but he's an expert on AFib and uh, ablations if you need it to have one of those. Oh, I can't remember who else we've got coming. We've got, Dad, we've got uh, Angela Hartley. They're going to be there, aren't they? Sad UK, yeah. of course, we've got uh, Anne and John coming to talk about uh, DFibs along with uh, Charlotte as well. And uh, Angela Hartley, who's a uh, rehab expert, a uh, physical rehab expert, cardiac rehab. Um, or oh, who else have we got? Um, we're hoping to have someone who's going to give a breakdown about ICDs and uh, living with an ICD. Uh, I'm sure there's plenty of things I've missed because there's so much going on. But you, obviously, you don't have to attend every session. Some of the sessions are going on concurrently, so you'll choose between one or the other. Um, and, and it's we're having plenty of breaks between the sessions as well so that people can mingle and just chat because we from the feedback from last year's event we found that a lot of people just enjoyed the the talking to other survivors or other uh, rescuers and family members but also so Paul, you know when you, plenty when of you time. again we learned so much from the event so yes obviously the friends for life point of view but you know even if a nurse of 20 something years didn't know half this stuff, I really feel for the public, the limited amount of information that you're given. So again, from the event last year and this year, I learned huge, huge amounts from my own point of view about my ICD, about my memory problems, about so many different things. So, you know, if you want to gain knowledge from that, this is the event to go to because, you know, these professionals have kindly given up their time to make sure that we get this information that often we've lacked from a post-cardiac arrest point of view. So you can tap into their knowledge during the day, which is absolutely phenomenal and so, so supportive. You come away buzzing with the amount of information that, that we've been given. So yes, obviously it's a friend, you know, it's support point of view, but also from a cardiac arrest survivor it gives you huge amounts of information as to why you have your memory problems and why do you feel like this sometimes so you know from that point of view you know it's hugely hugely beneficial it is and equally for partners as well to understand why you know we feel like we do at certain times so that's also you know please come along just if nothing else for that point of view as well Absolutely. And as you say, uh, talking about uh, how you feel about things, I've got forgot to mention that we've got um, Dr. Marco Meehan, who's uh, sort of works at the Essex CTC with uh, Dr. Keeble, and he's going to be talking about the psychological aspect of survivorship. And then following on from that, we've got um, uh, James Whitfield, who will be doing a mindfulness session as well. So you, there's practical help going on at these uh, at this event. Um, 
So hopefully we're going to be covering all the bases. Um, and it's just a great, it's going to be a great day, I know, and there's lots of nice food. It's a beautiful, beautiful um, setting. Um, and then in the evening, people can let their hair down and there's going to be a great party with live music, a DJ, plenty of space to um, spread out. So if you, I understand some people don't like the loud music and don't want to be up on the dance floor, but there's plenty of areas to be away from all of that. So you can just relax yeah, and chat. Definitely. And I remember last year when we were doing the countdown for us being in the room that we looked around and I didn't know anybody. I was so nervous and frightened um, because I was sat there on my own feeling completely overwhelmed um, and somebody just flung their arms around me to comfort me. And it was almost like a ripple effect and everybody just ended up hugging each other. These were complete strangers, but by some sheer twist of fate, we've all been thrown into exactly the same situation. So the support is there equally. You know, people got it if people wanted some time away on their own. There was no judgment at all as to how you or what you wanted from the day. Um, but please, please come along to the event because you will not be disappointed at all um, as to what you gain from the event. You can only be positive. There's nothing, nothing negative at all from the event. So please do come along, definitely. Absolutely. Um, I've, I've taken up a hell of a lot of your time. Uh, I've just realised, and <laughs> you do like to talk, don't you? But it's been really, it's, it's been really great uh, talking with you. Yeah, thank um, you. I hope you think the same. <laughs> yeah, no, I do. I think um, it's been beneficial, and I think you know the biggest thing on closing and um, is don't let your cardiac arrest define who you are. We've all been through this together it's hugely traumatic it isn't normal it isn't but there is life after cardiac arrest and there's a real cliche saying that when I do my speeches I love and that is the devil whispered in my ear you're not strong enough to withstand the storm I whispered I am the storm and I think that's so true for for all of us so um Huge thanks again to Paul for even setting up the group because I wouldn't be where I am now without the support from the group. Huge thanks to people in the group um, for all their ongoing support and advice. Um, and obviously, mainly to my husband, Stuart, who continues to support me, um, you know, on a daily basis. And when I don't feel at my strongest, he lifts me up. Um, so I wouldn't be where I am now without him um, and all of you. So thank you. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Um, it was my little bit to do something back. It's just setting up, clicking on a button to create a group. Yeah, here we are now. It's led to all yeah, sorts of things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It. All right, then. Well, thank you. Well, thank you very much, Charlotte. It's been uh, a fabulous uh, well, hour and a half or so of, of uh your your life and your experience and uh, you you give a, a, an additional insight to to the story because of uh, your your knowledge of being well being a, a nurse as well as being a survivor and also going on to actually uh, be a CPR giver yeah, as well so um, you've got a, a, a fantastic experience even though you perhaps yeah, didn't want to yeah. <laughs> well thank you very much and thank you for your time. Well, thank, thanks a lot for sharing it all. 
and we're, I'll see you again in September. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.